Dear Lord, this, uh, this time is yours, um, and this place is yours, and we are yours. Uh, so would you preach through us today? Would you uh, encourage our hearts? Um, would you show us the hope when we feel that there is no hope? Um, I thank you for this body, and I thank you for the message that has been preached here time and time again of your unending love. Um, thank you, Father. Amen. You know, it was approximately a year and a half ago that my family and I had to make the difficult decision to find a church that was closer uh, to our home because the drive from southeast Aurora, or otherwise what family and friends call Kansas, was really taking its toll on us. And it was really a heart-wrenching decision um, because we loved this church. Um, in 2005, my wife and I started um, attending Peter's Church um, up on the mountain, and then we came down here to the sanctuary. And I, had, I did have the great privilege of serving on the board for a couple years, and I found that to be incredibly rewarding. Um, around four to six months ago, I asked Peter if I could preach sometime at the sanctuary, because even though I was away physically from the church, I felt very tied to this body and to this church and to this message. And I just wanted an opportunity to share the impact that the sanctuary had on me and why I think that message is so important. I grew up in a Christian home. It was a great home. Um, my grandfather on my mom's side is the kind-hearted, um, loving uh, pastor. My aunt and uncle were missionaries in Africa for decades. And my parents helped start a community church in Colorado Springs in the late, late to mid-80s that is still going on today. My middle brother is an assistant professor at Montana Bible College in Bozeman, and my youngest brother is the senior pastor at All Souls Church in Boulder. So needless to say, I really grew up in church. It was an integral part of who I was, and I never knew my life without Jesus. One of the big turning points for me in my faith, though, was in my junior year in high school. That year, three of my fellow classmates died. One, who I had known since elementary school, was involved in a road rage incident and was shot point-blank on the side of the road while driving to school. The second was murdered here while living in Denver. He was throwing a baseball with his brother that went over a fence and he got into a dispute with a group of kids and he was shot. The third, who sat next to me in English class, committed suicide in his garage. I still remember the empty seat next to me as our English teacher was explaining what happened to Jeremy. And I was thinking, he was just here last week. I had just recently talked to all three of these people. And as far as I knew, none of them were really believers, and now they were gone. And from what I knew to be true, at that time, they were gone forever. The finality of death really never hit me so hard as it did that junior year in high school. And it wasn't just an immediate loss, it was my understanding that they were lost eternally. Ultimate separation from God. And somehow I played either a small or large part in their story's conclusion. In part because of my own silence and fear. Um, I mean, I, did, I had plenty of time to share God's message with them of salvation to each one, but I didn't. I remember while attending one of the funerals of the classmates 
I remember crying during the service and praying to God and telling him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I didn't do a better job of sharing your love and your message. And to be honest, I felt responsible. And if you feel responsible for one, it's really easy to feel responsible for many. It, was hard to it wasn't hard to conclude that each interaction that I had with another individual was a chance for them to hear the gospel and be saved. Or for me to hide because of my insecurities and for them to be possibly lost forever. Now looking back at this period of time, I really call it the weight or the burden. It was something I was beginning to feel day in and day out. My responsibility to save people. The way that I visualized it back then was simple. There was a building that was on fire and people were on the top floor not really realizing what was going on. And I needed to convey the message of what was happening and that there was a plan of how they could be saved. So in college, I joined a ministry. And we did go dorm room to dorm room sharing God's message of salvation. And sometimes it worked. And it was an amazing feeling. But often, it didn't. And the weight seemed to become heavier. I mean, I would try to rationalize some of it away, saying things like, well, I, I can only do so much. Or it's just not the right time to share. Or just, maybe worst of all, I don't feel like it. I mean, I mean it, life was happening, and I can't put all my intention into this, and it just really makes me feel unrelatable. I can't relate to people when I'm like this. But the harsh reality of what would happen to someone if they died not knowing Christ was always gnawing on my heart, and it wouldn't go away. And large doses of guilt really began to settle in. And this was my reality and what I thought was the reality of all Christians who believed in the Bible. And it was this, that God is all-powerful and all-loving. But we turned from him the moment Adam ate from the apple. He, in his love, sent his son in place of our sins so that we may spend eternity with him. But he has left us with the choice. And he uses his believers to speak and act out his message so that others may know him. And if someone does not believe, that person will have eternal separation from God and constant torment called hell. Also, on a side note, at any time, God could change someone's heart based on his own desire and will. So the question I began to ask myself is that when someone died not knowing Christ, whose fault was it? I mean, whose fault was it? And the way I saw it, there was really three options. One, it was my fault. I probably didn't do enough. I didn't take advantage of all the opportunities I had. I could have been better. I made feeble attempts to be better and try to do more, but I always felt it just wasn't enough. There was always so much to do. It was a constant pressure because the consequences were so immense. It was eternity. So the weight piled on. I knew mentally, physically, emotionally, I could not meet the urgency of the gospel. And this began to rob me of joy because I began to see people not as people and God's loving creation, but as projects. 
They were a project for salvation, to get them from here to here. And it was a win for the kingdom when it happened. Well, if it wasn't my fault, number two, maybe it was the person's fault. I mean, they didn't, they made the decision not to follow God, and this was the consequence. Didn't God give them ample time and opportunities to choose him, and they decided not to? They turned their back on him. I found over time this thought process led me to be increasingly judgmental. And the people who were most blatant against God and his standards, I saw them as enemies, blocking mine or God's or any Christian's ability to share the gospel. They were obstacles, and they more or less deserved what was coming to them. It was us versus them. But this became complicated when it became more personal. There were family members that I knew who did not know Christ, who were kind and considerate, and I loved them deeply. I had shared the gospel with them multiple times, but they didn't believe. And the thought of their eternal anguish when they died became something mentally too hard for me to bear. So I began to question, whose else fault was it? Whose fault was it? Number three, was it God's fault? I mean, wasn't he all-powerful and all-loving? Didn't he desire us to be with him? Couldn't he, at the snap of his fingers, change someone's heart? These questions began to plague me. And as the years went on, I began to see less and less of God's goodness and more and more of the pain and suffering we humans were living through. I was seeing God as someone who didn't care that much or was powerless to do so because it went against his justice. Now, of course, all these are just simple generalizations, and I for sure did not feel this all at once. It really happened slowly over the years. And if you looked at my life from the outside, it was hard to see the turmoil that was occurring really in the inside. But my heart was pulling back from God's heart. And if I could boil it down to one simple fact, it was this. I was questioning God's goodness. If I, Jason Forsyth, who is imperfect, struggled deeply with those who were lost, what does it say about God, who is perfect, but with his ultimate power has failed to stop the eternal damnation and separation of those he created? Was it possible my heart was bigger than God's? Did I care more? I would read a verse like Psalms 100, verse 5, that says, For the Lord is good. Really? He's good? Is it good that millions are suffering day in and day out, and he has this power to stop it at any moment, and he doesn't? Is he trying to teach us something? Like how bad we are? Maybe we even deserve this. Oh, and by the way, when you do decide to believe in him, the pain doesn't stop. Is this the definition of good? His steadfast love endures forever. I hate to say it, but it doesn't. It stops at death. The people who are in hell are not chanting, his love endures forever. I mean, you can't have hell and both his love endure forever. Unless he loves for people to be tormented forever in hell. Is that not his justice 
upon our sinful acts. His faithfulness to all generations. He is faithful to some, but not all. He's faithful to me, or sorry, his faithfulness to me depends on my faith and belief. He's faithful if I have faith in him. Now again, I never said this out loud. I was literally afraid to. But these questions began to take root in my heart and taint the world as I was seeing it, bit by bit. I could feel myself become cynical. I was afraid to ask these questions, more because I was concerned that my greatest fears would be confirmed, that there is a limit to God's love. What I was slowly losing was hope. So, what is hope? The Greek word in the New Testament for it is elpis, and it is described or seen as a, not as a fluffy desire or a wish, like we use the word here often in our own culture, for instance, I hope we have pizza tonight. No, it is very different than that. And Nelson's Bible Dictionary is described as a confident expectancy. The thought of something that will happen, not something wished for or desired to happen. It has substance to it. It is not frilly or aloof. It is concrete because of where it comes from, the heart of God. In Psalm 71, it says, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. But I was losing sight of this. I was losing sight of hope in him. I always think that if I was Satan, now don't worry, I don't always think uh, that I'm always Satan, though my wife says I like to play devil's advocate all the time. Um, But if I was, what could I do to cause God significant pain and anguish? Would it be to have his children believe that their heavenly father is not love, that he is not good, and that there is no hope, and that he does not save? Doesn't that kind of sound like hell? In C.S. Lewis's classic classic book, Screwtape Letters, one of the demons says, it's funny how mortals always picture us putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. It was this shadowing of the truth where my hope was fading. I was seeing limits to God's love, grace, and patience. And in that place, it was easy to become apathetic, cynical, and and just outright angry with God. But thanks be to God that he does not let us linger and that despair for long. And when Jen and I started attending the sanctuary, it was literally a fresh breath air. Here were people who were struggling with the same questions I had, and it was a safe place for me to share my fears and concerns and questions. But most of all, I felt I was seeing God's true heart for the first time, unbound and released from the confines that I had made to contain it a heart that my spirit recognized, a father's heart, a heart that would leave the 99 to find the one, a heart that would welcome a dishonored son with open arms, a heart that would say, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It was at this place that I fell in in love with Jesus once again. I could hear him tell me, 
trust me, it's a wonderful story I am telling you. And you will not understand it all. There is heartache and there is pain. But I will be there with you. Do not be afraid and do not lose hope. What was lost will be found. In 1 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, the Bible says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to the end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. He's asking us to trust him, to trust that he cares more than we will ever know. He is the God who saves. His plan is not lacking. It is our vision that is short-sighted. So, those of you who know me um, know that I enjoy old things or antiques. My daughter would say, maybe because you're old. <laughs> well, regardless of why, uh, my beloved wife let me convert a room into a study where I could put all the old things that I've kind of collected. Um, they're a compilation of like antiques um, from garage sales or eBay or Craigslist. Or some of my most favorite things are the treasures that have been passed down from family members. But the one thing that I, or the things that I enjoy the most really have to be the old books. I just love old books. I love the smell of them, and I love the thought that what I have in my hand has been held by others, in some cases for over 200 years. My favorite poem is a section piece by Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. I first saw this poem, of course, in one of my old books. The poem is, is titled, In Memory of A.H.H. This is Arthur Henry Halem, and he was a close friend of Tennyson's, who died at the age of 22 from cerebral hemorrhage. It is said that Tennyson was greatly affected by the death of this friend, and he wrote a poem over a span of 17 years when he finally finished it in 1849. I first saw this piece, a small part of the overall poem, and a religious compilation book that I had. And it was uh, titled Trust. Oh, yet we trust that somehow good will be the final goal of ill to pangs of nature and sins of will, de defects of doubt and taints of blood, that nothing walks with aimless feet, that not one life shall be destroyed or cast as rubbish to the void when God hath made the pile complete, that not a worm is cloven in vain, that not a mouth, moth, in, with vain desire is shriveled in a fruitless fire or but subserves another's gain. Behold, we know not anything. I can but trust that good shall fall at last for off, at last to all, and every winter change to spring. So runs my dream. But what am I? An infant crying in the night, an infant crying for the light, and with no language but a cry. It reminds me of Romans 8.26 that says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
you know he is our only hope, our only substance. We have no hope except in him. He is our good, the only good. There is no good except that what comes from God's hand. So we do not have to be afraid, for the lies will be overwhelmed with the truth, for what is out of reach of his love and his grace. It really truly endures forever. Ephesians 1, 4, and 10 says, In love he has predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of this grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So while I was trying to figure out who was at fault, who was to blame for all the lost souls of the world, God was sending me a different answer than I expected to hear. He was sending me the message of hope. And isn't it funny that when we have hope, when we believe that God's promises will happen, not might, but will, our perspective changes, and we stop pointing our fingers at who's to blame. When you can trust in God's goodness, we have a different understanding of the bad. Hope knocks the wind out of the sails of blame and despair. The weight I was carrying before I received this message, was, message of hope was the weight that I had to save people. I was the savior. I was their hope. Their chance was through my effort. And I did such a poor job because it really never was my job from the beginning. Our message is the message of reconciliation. Apo katalaso is one of the Greek translations for the word reconciliation. As described by one commentator, the word stresses the completeness of the restoration affected, meaning it is done. We see it used in such verses as in Colossians. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you know we have been given that message and that ministry of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians it says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. I don't know when or where, or how he will do all this. But I know he will. It has always been his hand outstretched to us. Because he is the mover, the reconciler, the peacemaker, the qualifier, the deliverer, the redeemer. He is the lover, and we are his beloved. So when I read Psalms 105, it says something different. For the Lord is good. And I can say with my heart, he is good. He is the only good. 
In the Psalms it says, I have no good apart from you. And though I might not understand the full story, I trust that it is good, for he has foreshadowed this on the cross. When it appeared that all hope was lost and evil loomed like a dark cloud, we can now look back and proclaim, he has done it. And what we would agree was the most evil, hanging the Son of God on the cross, became the most good, the salvation of men and women to his glory. His steadfast love endures forever. Death is not the end of his love as I first believed. There is only one end, and that is God. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In Corinthians it says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? In Romans 8, 38 and 39 says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus and his faithfulness to all generations. If I am faithless, he remains faithful. Timothy 2, 13. He is the constant, and I am the variable. In Psalms, David says, Where should I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He has never left her side, nor will he ever. You know, looking back through this whole process, I never did sense that God had left me. It was more of me holding up my fist and asking, where are you in all this? I cannot see you. Where is your love? I'm finding it hard to trust you. And sometimes he answers us, our questions, in sort of the simplest ways. My commute to work can take some time, especially when I started commuting from Kansas. It was during one of these commutes a couple of years ago that I find myself listening to a simple song and near the intersection of Yale and Colorado, I had to pull the car over into an empty parking lot because I couldn't drive through all the tears. I felt like God was, an God was answering me through this song that I wanted to play for you. Called you. 
finish have hope God is good he is the fisher of men and women and maybe he uses us for bait our lives our words our relationships I just believe his net is wider than we can ever know and it isn't it good to know that God has come to seek and save the lost you know on the night that he was betrayed. He was sitting at the table with the disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given to you. This is our hope. It is him. He said, take this and eat in remembrance of me. Do not forget. And in the same way, he took the wine, and he poured it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink in remembrance of me. So every time that we drink of the wine and eat of the bread, we are remembering the hope that he has placed within us and to call out to him to help us Please, if the ushers can come and we can do communion.